the most significant and ennobling accomplishments in life are necessarily the result of establishing plans and moving slowly or quickly toward their realization. In my own life, it seems as though these are plans broader and more general to begin with, and as they go along, they become more specific and concrete. It's rather like a campaign of Dungeons and Dragons. My character begins the adventure with a set of skills and attributes, and I know that I intend to improve them through experience, gather cool new pieces of equipment, ally with other characters, and complete quests. By analogy, when I set off to my first semester of community college at 17, I was moving in the general direction of acquiring an education for the purpose of having a future career and so on. But I did not have a specific career in mind. I just figured that whatever career it turned out to be, it would require that I begin with freshman-level courses. An overall framework only began to take shape later. I think in my case it was less a plan than an imagined goal. Sailing the seas with a compass aimed at a new world that might be a long, long way off. Looking back, I'm relieved that I didn't know how long it would take. I think I may have made a turn toward a more practical goal. I'm now 39 years old, and I'm in the market for my first position as assistant professor. I will likely be 40 or even 41 by the time I become a member of a college faculty. All along, I think I was just satisfied to be moving toward the future. Even when the winds are barely blowing, at least I'm heading toward my destination. It seems likely that consciousness is necessary for constructing explicit future plans. If this is the case, then one important function for conscious being, at least in the case of human being, is the enabling of plan-making. In his book Consciousness, Confessions of a Romantic Reductionist, Christoph Koch writes, quote, Why isn't the brain just a bunch of specialized zombie agents? As they work effortlessly and rapidly, why is consciousness needed at all? Because life sometimes throws you a curveball. The unexpected happens, and you have to think before you act. Your regular route to work is blocked by heavy traffic, and you consider alternatives. Francis and I argued that consciousness is important for planning during such episodes, contemplating and choosing a future course of action among many different competing ones. Should you wait for the traffic jam to resolve itself, turn left for the long intersection-free detour, or right onto inner-city surface streets with their innumerable traffic lights? Such deliberations require that all relevant facts be summarized and presented to the mind's decision-making stage. This argument does not imply that all brain activities associated with planning are accessible to consciousness. It may well be that unconscious processes can also plan, but much more slowly than conscious processes or without looking quite as far into the future. Biological systems, unlike artificial ones, are too redundant, too interwoven to fail completely when one processing module is knocked out. Instead, Francis and I surmise that consciousness permits us to plan more flexibly and further into the future than zombie agents can." Unquote. Animal behavior, while often complex, is generally quite stereotyped. This is particularly true with the projects that animals undertake. Examples are abundant. Beavers build dams. Birds build nests. Monarch butterflies migrate. Squirrels bury nuts. Bears fatten up in preparation for their annual hibernation. These behaviors suggest a kind of plan, but it is better understood as a plan of ev evolution rather than a plan contrived by an individual animal. I think these instinctual behaviors are referred to by evolutionary biologists as extended phenotype. I note that chimpanzees don't build huts or carry tools from place to place. This is the case even though it would be quite easy for them to do so, to carry a favorite stone or a sharpened stick around as personal property. They don't do these things presumably because they don't plan for future situations. Does this imply that animals, 
even highly intelligent ones, aren't conscious? No, I don't think it is implied at all. We never said that consciousness requires the capacity to make plans. We said that making plans requires consciousness. Koch goes so far as to suggest that planning is what consciousness is for, its function. But in the same chapter, he speculates that all mammals, and likely birds, reptiles, amphibians, even bugs are conscious. Bugs don't plan. Why then, if the function of consciousness is to enable cognitive and behavioral flexibility in planning, might these animals exhibit consciousness? For the record, I am biased against consciousness in bugs. But I assume that creatures like chimpanzees and dogs and hamsters are. Neuroanatomically, these mammals are remarkably similar to humans. The specialization that makes the human brain especially noteworthy is the hypertrophy evident in our prefrontal cortices. I don't see evidence that the prefrontal cortex is even necessary to be conscious, though it appears to be pretty important for executive functions. The frontal cortex has been classically implicated in complex executive functions, like planning. Tim Chalice relays a passage from Leonardo Bianchi, 1922, on frontal lesions in the monkey. Bianchi said, quote, The monkey, which used to jump onto the window ledge to call out to his companions, after the operation, jumps onto the ledge again but does not call out. The sight of the window determines the reflex of the jump, but the purpose is now lacking, for it is no longer represented in the focal point of consciousness. Another monkey sees the handle of the door and grasps it, but the mental process stops at the sight of the bright color of the handle. The animal does not attempt to turn it so as to open the door, but sits on it. Evidently, there are lacking all those other images that are necessary for the determination of a series of movements coordinated towards one end." Unquote. In his book From Neuropsychology to Mental Structure, Shallus describes how human frontal lobe lesions have comparable effects. He writes, quote, If one looks in detail at the performance of the patients, there are a number of clear signs that their deficit is at the programming level. For instance, they were asked to copy the figure of Ray a complex design used to test constructional skills and memory. When L2 was presented with the design broken down into six separate stages with only a small section of the total figure to be added at each stage, the figure was fairly satisfactorily reproduced. Nearly all the features were correctly inserted. When, however, he was presented with the figure to copy without any additional structuring, his performance was defective, very few features were recognizable, and even these were misplaced. The effect of providing a program for the initial copying was also seen in his reproduction of the design for memory." Unquote. Planning, as we saw in the introduction to this episode, presupposes that there is a goal. This implies value for a preferential future situation. In the case of Bianchi's monkeys, frontal lesions resulted either in a failure to have and maintain a goal, or in a failure to put together steps that would achieve it, or both. The preferential future has to have a value that is sufficiently adv advantageous that we are willing to suffer in the present in the hopes of attaining it. In his meditations, Marcus Aurelius writes, quote, At break of day, when you are reluctant to get up, have this thought ready to mind. I am getting up for a man's work. Do I still then resent it if I am going out to do what I was born for, the purpose for which I was brought into the world, or was I created to wrap myself in blankets and keep warm? But this is more pleasant. Were you then born for pleasure, all for feeling, not for action? Can you not see plants, birds, ants, spiders, bees, all doing their own work, each helping in their own way to order the world, and then you do not want to do the work of a human being? You do not hurry to the demands of your own nature? But one needs rest too. One does indeed, I agree, but nature has set limits to this too, just as it has to eating and drinking, and yet you go beyond these limits, beyond what you need, 
Not in your actions, though. Not any longer. Here you stay below your capability. Unquote. Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics, generally, suggest the formation of goals, the attainment of which will make one virtuous. To be a philosopher is the highest achievement, and it cannot be done without constant sacrifice. If the length of his writings directed at self-admonishment is any indication, Marcus Aurelius needed some convincing. By this means, he sought to overcome what Freud called the id. The opposite inclination is well characterized in a classic joke by Mitch Hedberg, who said, quote, I write jokes for a living. I sit at my hotel at night, I think of something that's funny. Then I go get a pen and write it down. Or if the pen is too far away, I have to convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. Unquote. In that case, Mitch is expressing the desire to overcome the ego and let the id win. I found Jordan Peterson's analysis of future planning as a human discovery really illuminating. In 12 Rules for Life, he wrote, quote, When engaging in sacrifice, our forefathers began to act out what would be considered a proposition, if it were stated in words, that something better might be attained in the future by giving up something of value in the present. Recall, if you will, that the necessity for work is one of the curses placed by God upon Adam and his descendants in consequence of the original sin. Adam's waking to the fundamental constraints of his being, his vulnerability, his eventual death, is equivalent to his discovery of the future. Unquote. A bit further along, Peterson writes, quote, Prosaically, such sacrifice, work, is delay of gratification, but that's a very mundane phrase to describe something of such profound significance. The discovery that gratification could be delayed was simultaneously the discovery of time, and with it causality, at least the causal force of voluntary human action. Long ago, in the dim mists of time, we began to realize that reality was structured as if it could be bargained with. We learned that behaving properly now, in the present, regulating our impulses, considering the plight of others, could bring rewards in the future, in a time and place that did not yet exist." Unquote. The mythology in the book of Genesis seems to make the case for future planning, the burden of the future upon the present, as a human development, and ultimately a human existential problem. This might indeed be the case. The cost, even allowing that the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is an allegory rather than a historical claim, is a life of suffering for the human being. We bear a heavy responsibility for what we do every day, how we conduct ourselves, what we do or do not accomplish, and to top it off, we are going to die, and we know it. We have evolved an elaborated frontal cortex, which has, in exchange for this suffering, endowed us with godlike powers in comparison to our animal kin. Whether or not this is a bargain is up for debate. One of the most famous cases of neurological injury was that of Phineas Gage, who survived a metal rod which blasted through his skull and destroyed a substantial region of his frontal cortex. His behavior and social conduct was severely altered after that. It is said that he could no longer plan or make effective decisions. This is in agreement with other neuropsychological evidence involving frontal lobe lesions. For example, here is something from a chapter by Susan Iverson, Irving Kupferman, and Eric Kandel in The Principles of Neuroscience. They write, quote, Rigorous neuropsychological tests have been used in patients with ventral medial frontal lobe damage to evaluate the influence of affective information on behavior. One such test is a gambling experiment in which a player sits in front of four decks of cards labeled A, B, C, and D. The player is given a loan of $2,000 and told that the game is about losing as little as possible and trying to make more money. Play consists of turning one card at a time from any of the four decks until the experimenter says stop. The player is told that turning every card results in earning more money, but occasionally a card will be turned that results in paying back money to the experimenter. 
No information is given about the size of the gains or losses or about the cards to be found in the different decks. Only when a card is turned does the player learn its value. No tally of gains and losses is available except in the subject's mind. The undisclosed rules are that A and B cards yield $100, but occasionally require the subject to repay $1,250. Cards C and D yield $50, but only require repayment of small sums, less than $100. Normal people, lured by high rewards, initially play decks A and B, but gradually, usually within 30 of the designated 100 trials of the game, they switch to a preference for decks C and D. Thus, normal subjects appear to develop a hunch that decks A and B are more dangerous than the others. Patients with frontal lesions behave in quite a different way. After an early general sampling of the card decks, they prefer cards from decks A and B, and despite the high penalties and the need to borrow money from the bank, they hold to this preference throughout the test. They clearly know which decks are riskier, but they continue to behave in this inappropriate way even when retested at a later time." Unquote. Human beings with damaged prefrontal cortices are poor at planning. Moreover, non-human animals aren't particularly good at planning, and children, who notoriously do not develop a fully formed prefrontal cortex until sometime in the early 20s, are not as good as adults at making rational decisions about the future. Finally, when we dream, the frontal cortex is suppressed. We are clearly conscious when we dream. It is like something to be dreaming. But the capacity to plan is sadly lacking. This is why dreams feel like they are being experienced as a spectator without much active control. Taken together, it seems clear that planning for the future requires a healthy and highly evolved prefrontal cortex. This might require consciousness, but I contest that it is the principal function of consciousness across the evolution of species. In a previous episode, I proposed the idea of the qualitative evaluator function of consciousness. According to this hypothesis, the conscious mind does not have direct causal power on motor output. Instead, the conscious mind likes or prefers one direction or another, and unconscious processes, what Koch calls zombie agents, are influenced by that evaluation. I tend to think that networks in the prefrontal cortex which are responsible for cognitive functions like attention and planning should be thought of as behavioral systems. Just as voluntary movement and speech are behaviors, so I suggest are pointing one's attention, doing mental arithmetic, or solving puzzles in the mind like putting things in order or creating a plan of action. These cognitive capabilities are much enhanced in adult human beings relative to, relative to our cousins in the animal kingdom or to our human children. To say that planning for the future requires consciousness makes a special case out of a more general one. Lots of things humans are capable of doing require consciousness. Language, ethics, artistic endeavors, abstract thinking, empathy, religious belief, and so on. So what do all of these complex thoughts and abilities need with consciousness? To give you my opinion, I must first re remind you of the basics of my framework for consciousness, the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL. According to the TICL framework, human consciousness is composed of meaningful contents that exist from the point of view of a single large integrated system in the thalamocortex. Subsystems occurring within that large system are integrated across their neuronal elements to a higher degree over a shorter time than the elements that make up the whole system. These subsystems give rise to the contents of consciousness, which appear in the conscious composition as soon as they form, and remain for as long as they persist in having a higher degree of temporally integrated causality than the greater system. This means that the level of temporally integrated causality across the greater system sets a threshold for conscious perception. 
It also means that the meaningful contents which coexist from the point of view of the system thereby provide more information when unified within a common mind than they would do if they were localized and disintegrated. The thoughts, associations, and perceptions can be compared, contrasted, reordered, reimagined, reconceptualized. These capabilities require a highly functional cognitive system. That's where the prefrontal cortex comes in. Many of these executive functions require it. Consciousness is the unified composition of qualia. Only from the global perspective can these higher functions have access to all of the information they need. I said that language and religion and abstract thinking require consciousness. This, I propose, is because consciousness is compositional. Here is a composition of different qualia, a visual scene, a soundscape, tastes and smells, thoughts and associations, all arising and dynamic. Here, in the common space of a unified conscious mind, are Hume's causes and effects, resemblance and contiguity in time or space. Here are not only percepts, but ideas about percepts. Language is the capacity to give name to the qualia, to describe how they interact or what they signify. Religion is belief about qualia, their transcendental symbolism and so on. Abstract thinking enables the percepts to be quantified, added up or multiplied, or laid out into logical arrangements. Creativity is the capacity to do novel things with the percepts, to imagine them and visualize them, to analogize. All of these cognitive capabilities seem to be behaviors that we can engage in. We can thus manipulate the world of perceptual and conceptual things with the tools of cognition, just as we can manipulate the material world with our hands and teeth. Consciousness does so much more than enable planning. Like attention or language or reasoning, planning is an application that can be taken on board to utilize the advantages of consciousness, something whose majesty is a full step, a whole order of magnitude more fundamental than a cognitive tool. This, the conscious mind, is where meaning lives. Mm -hmm.